July 4th, 1776, seven Virginia delegates to the Second Continental Congress joined their colleagues in signing their names at the bottom of the following paragraph. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states. That they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I will not give a U.S. government test and ask what document that is from, but I hope you know that is the end of the Declaration of Independence. And it's a reminder that Tuesday is about more than fireworks. It's about remembering the day that our, our nation was born. It's, it's America's birthday in many respects. And that document, that declaration, launched our country into a war with Great Britain that culminated in the 1783 Treaty of Paris, where King George III finally recognized America as an independent nation. It was a stunning victory, it was a historic victory, and we rightly pause as a country once a year and give thanks, recognize, for the freedom that we enjoy. And to the degree it's not yet a freedom we equally experience, we continue to pray, as we will tonight. But church, I also want us to stop and recognize this weekend that that the victory we need the most is not the victory we're going to celebrate on Tuesday. The victory we need the most is not a political victory ensuring freedom from the British crown and the right to self-determination, okay? The victory we need the most is a spiritual victory ensuring freedom from sin and power to live for the God who made us to know him. That's the victory we need the most. And and this whole book of 1 John is, is designed to help us know Are we living in the good of that victory or not? Where where do we stand with God? There's a test of faith in here, a test of obedience, a test of love that, that work together, as I just said, to help us evaluate, am I living in the good of the spiritual victory that God wants me to experience and made a way for me to experience through faith in Christ? And that victory where faith in Jesus enables us to love God, to obey God, and in so doing, genuinely love one another, pulls faith, love, 
and obedience together as a package deal. All right, if you've been following this sermon series, those words, faith, obedience, love, they just kind of keep stalking us. They won't go away. And, and John keeps coming back to how they're all connected. It's clear that they're either present together or absent together. And as John gets near the end of this book, believe it or not, we are in chapter five. I can see the, the runway in sight here. He stops, he slows down to make sure we really understand how do these things work together? How does faith, obedience, and love work together as an inseparable part of this life of spiritual victory? That really is the theme of these first five verses in chapter five. Spiritual victory. Because friends, God wants us to exchange the sorrow of life in the kingdom of this world for the joy of life in the kingdom of God. There is a spiritual victory that God wants you to experience. And these five verses help us understand what it looks like and how to get there. So there's a lot going on here, a lot of faith, love, and obedience working together. But but if I was gonna summarize the whole, I'd say it this way, okay? Here's the big idea. The victory faith enables is the obedience that love requires. The victory that faith enables is, what's it look like? The obedience that love requires. God wants you to enjoy a life of spiritual victory. He really does. Some of you need to hear that. He really wants you to, but but the victory he holds out and offers you is not the victory we naturally want, right? What, what, What do we naturally want? We want freedom from poverty and sickness, we, we want freedom from conflict or addictions. We, we certainly want freedom from racism and injustice, all of which are good things that, praise God, King Jesus has promised will one day come to pass. But that's not our greatest need. It's not. It's what's all over the news, but it's not our greatest need. The victory you need the most Please hear this. The victory you need the most is freedom to love and serve the Lord. That's the victory you need the most, the freedom to love and serve the Lord. And in so doing, to love and serve all who bear his image. That's the victory we need the most. And and how to enjoy that kind of freedom, how to to enjoy that kind of victory is the goal of these verses. And if you look at verse one, it starts with faith. It starts with faith. What what John teaches us here in this first verse, church, about the object, the subject, and the origin of faith is the key to understanding everything else in this passage, okay? Point number one, faith, what's John saying about faith here? Faith requires a miracle. It requires a miracle. If you fail to grasp the object, the subject, and the origin of biblical faith, you will never enjoy the victory that faith enables or practice the obedience that love requires. 
And if you fail to understand faith, you will certainly never understand why the victory faith enables is the obedience love requires. So look at verse one. What's John say here? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been what? Say it a little louder. Born of God. Born of God. That's right. So, so let's consider first the, the object of biblical faith. Now remember, faith never just is. It always has an object. It, it's trust. So what are you trusting in, okay? The kind of faith that results in a life of spiritual victory is not an inner confidence that God exists or that Jesus is a real person. The demons believe that. And they enjoy no spiritual victory. Biblical faith is a heartfelt conviction. Here we get to the object. That Jesus is the Christ. That's what it believes. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, two things, okay? Very simple. First, it means you believe that you need a savior. That's implicit in that. You believe that your sin separates you from God, that it, that it merits his righteous judgment, and that nothing good you ever could do could restore your relationship with him. The bidding starts there. That's the first thing when John says, believe that Jesus is the Christ. That belief, Jesus is the Christ, starts with believing that we need a savior. It doesn't stop there, right? What's the second thing? includes. It means believing that Jesus is the Savior we desperately need. We believe we need a Savior. We believe that Jesus is the Savior we desperately need. So we believe that as the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ lived and died and rose from the grave so that that all your sins could be forgiven, so that you could receive the free gift of God's righteousness, and you could be adopted as a beloved child of God and welcomed into eternal life with the Father for all eternity. That reminds us that biblical faith, this faith that requires a miracle, is not a generic belief in Jesus, okay? Biblical faith is a specific belief. It's an exclusive belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Holy One of God, our Savior and and King. And in that sense, in that sense alone, Jesus is the object of biblical faith. So what's the subject? Okay, who, who's doing the believing here? Who's called to believe that Jesus is the Christ? Well, we are, right? We are. Romans 10 backs that up. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, your mouth, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. What does that remind us, church? It reminds us that the choice to believe or not believe in Jesus Christ is a real choice. It's a real choice. In fact, it's the most important choice you will ever make. So biblical faith has an object, Jesus Christ. It has a subject, you and me as sinners. But the simple fact, here we get to the main point here. Faith requires a miracle. The simple fact that we are the subject of biblical faith does not make us the origin. 
It doesn't. The Bible teaches that if saving faith is going to be present in us, then something has to happen to us. Namely, end of verse, first part of verse one, we have to be what? Born of God. We have to be born again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ in the present, notice that, has been born of God when? In the past. Right. So what's it mean to be born of God? If you're visiting the church or you're coming back after years of neglecting your relationship with God, you think, oh, here he goes, throwing out all those phrases I heard when I was a little kid in the church. Well, I'm going to bring some definition, okay? I'm not just going to throw out a phrase. To be born of God is to describe a miracle by which the Holy Spirit takes a heart, our hearts, okay, that are both unwilling and unable to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, imparts a principle of spiritual understanding and power to us such that we become both willing and able to perceive that we need a Savior and to trust that Jesus is that Savior. So faith in Christ is not something that you can conjure up in yourself. It is something you must choose to exercise. But you cannot exercise it, friend, unless you are born again, unless the Spirit of God takes a heart that is cold to the things of God and makes it alive. John is only saying that because Jesus said that, by the way. John chapter three, verse three. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you could also translate that born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So biblical faith has an object, Jesus Christ. It has a subject, sinners like you and me, and it, and it has an origin, namely the regenerating power of God applied by the spirit of God that enables us to believe. And that's why I say faith requires a miracle. It's a real action, but it requires a divine miracle. That, that reality, how does this apply to us? Well, that reality, I'm convinced, the truth in verse one here, that should produce profound humility and hope in our hearts. Okay, humility and hope, what do I mean by that? What should produce humility in, in those of us who are exploring Christianity? Maybe for the first time, in the sense that remembering faith is a miracle, requires a miracle, it reminds us that what you need the most is not to get your spiritual act together or attend church more often. What, what you need the most is for the Spirit of God to change your heart. So I don't know what brought you into church, but I certainly know what Jesus Christ wants to do in you in this church. That's to change your heart. You know, as the farmer cannot cause his crops to grow or the wind to blow or make the rain fall, neither can you, friend, cause faith in Christ to rise in your heart. As Jesus said in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh, you're not an exception to this, nor am I, is of what? No help at all. <laughs> really? I sure would like it to be. It's not. 
It's the spirit who gives life. So humble yourself and cry out to God to change your heart so that you can trust and follow Christ as your savior. How else does this apply? We're still in the realm of humility here. Well, some of, some of you have walked with Christ for a long time. A long time. And, and your faith in him has, has made a profound difference in the choices that you've made for decades. I know many of you in this category and you're experiencing God's blessing as a result of those choices. But stop and consider, friend, as John reminds us that faith requires a miracle, who enabled you to make those choices? It was the mercy of God. Mercy of God, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? This is one of my life verses, by the way. Matthew. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Christian, you don't have anything you didn't receive. Nothing. I, I don't care what people compliment you for. Maybe as you heard the word Morgan share this morning, you're thinking, that's me. Yep, I've always thought I'm such a loving guy. People always say that. If you are a loving person, that is because you receive that gift from Jesus Christ. Your faith and all the wise choices that flow from that requires a miracle. You are not a self-made Christian. You are a recipient of the lavish mercy of God. Faith requires a miracle and it should make us humble. It should also make us hopeful. I was thinking this week about those of you who have a spouse or a friend or maybe a child who's not walking with the Lord. They don't, they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. You, you look at your life, you listen to their words, you listen to the way they respond to your words, and, and you see little reason to believe that anything will ever change. And in all honesty, I, I can't promise you that, that it will. But this I can promise you, friend, and with this I believe the Lord would comfort you Their unbelief is not sovereign. God is. Their unbelief is not sovereign. God is. He holds their heart in his hands, and if he can make the lame walk and the blind see and the dead rise, then he can most certainly impart spiritual life into that dead heart. You can believe him because he's able to do that. So persist in calling upon his name. Don't stop calling upon his name, not, not because of who that person is or what you see in them, but because of who God is and what you know of him. Faith requires a miracle. Makes us humble, makes us hopeful. And, and when that miracle takes place, this is incredible. When that miracle takes place, What's John remind us here? When we believe Jesus is the Christ, verse one, we're born of God. Look at the second part of verse one here. Two new loves, two new affections immediately rise in our heart. Look at the second part of verse one. When you're born of God, faith rises. That's a miracle. Two new affections rise. One, love for God. 
as our spiritual father, and two, love for our fellow Christians as our spiritual siblings. So love for God is our father, love for Christians is our siblings. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father as a result loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, where love for the father is present, love for his children will also be present. And we see this thing all the time. If if you're a parent, I'm a parent, so I'll just talk from my experience here, illustrate. If you want to love me, you know what you need to do? Love my three boys, who I dearly love. Peter Burdett on the back row has taken my kids out for ice cream. He has bought them toys. He has taken them to movies. They love Mr. Peter. Thank you, pal. Every time I come home from work and Elisa tells me, guess what Peter did today with the boys? (laughs) Guess what Peter wants to do tomorrow with the boys? I feel so loved by my brother, Peter Burdett. You love my kids. You love me. It's the same thing with Jesus. It's true physically. It's true spiritually. So, So what does love for our spiritual siblings look like? And what does love for our spiritual father look like? Well, those are the two questions that John anticipates and answers in verses two and three. What what does love for our spiritual father look like? What does love for our spiritual siblings look like? He anticipates and answers both those questions and good news for us, good news for you today, the answer to both of them is the same. Point number two, obedience is the essence of love. What's love for a spiritual father, love for our spiritual siblings look like? Well, Obedience is the essence of love. So so in our relationship with God, I don't think that's altogether surprising, but but it's easy to forget. So look at verse three. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. What what are God's commandments? Well, they're God's words, right? They are what God has spoken to us in the Bible. These are his words. So where the Bible speaks, God speaks, And if you want to love God, then there's one thing you must do. Obey his words. Do what he says. Why? Well, because to disobey God's word is to reject God's word. And to reject God's word is to reject God's authority. And to reject God's authority is to reject God himself. Do not separate your response to Scripture from your response to God. Obedience is the essence of love. And that's true whether we're we're talking about black and white issues, where the Bible speaks with undeniable clarity, or or gray areas where we have to wrestle with, with how to apply scriptural principles to a difficult situation. So this you can always know in every situation, friend. When it comes to your relationship with God, loving God, Your obedience or lack thereof is intensely relational. It's intensely relational. So here's what you cannot do, okay? You cannot claim to love God and insist that all the people around you recognize that 
Agree with me, I love God. You cannot claim to love God and demand that other people recognize you as a person who loves God if you are not willing to do what God says in every area of life. Don't go trying to make that work. You cannot insist that you love God and demand that other people agree you love God if you're just not willing to do what he says in every area of life. And there are many professing Christians who say they love God. But the conduct of their life is, is no different than the world. By, by the way, if that's kept you out of the church, please know that's not a knock on Christianity. That's simply a sign that in many of those cases, faith was not genuine. And a sign to the degree I, like many of us here, continue to struggle with hypocrisy, that we need a great big savior. And so do you. But if you love God, you'll keep his commandments, plain and simple. So, so in our relationship with our spiritual father, it makes sense that, that obedience is the essence of love. Now, now, how about this relationship with our spiritual siblings? I mentioned that, right? What, what does love for them look like? Well, look at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we what? Love God and obey his commands. We need to feel the force of what John's saying here. If you're a Christian, please hear this. The only way that you will ever love the fellow Christians around you is if you obey God's word. Why, why is that the definition of love for people? Well, think about it. If you genuinely love someone, genuinely love someone, okay, then you want them to experience the greatest possible good, right? You want them to experience the greatest possible good. You want them to be content. You want them to be satisfied. You want their life to abound with all that is true and right and beautiful. Even those of you who are not Christians, I hope as I say that, something resonates in you. Yeah, that's what love does. Well, how can you make that happen? Well, friend, it starts with, with recognizing that there, there is no person, pleasure, or possession in this world. Nothing you could ever give to that person you love or do for or with that person you love that is more satisfying or glorious than Jesus. He's, he's the treasure in the field. He's the pearl of, of great price. He's, he's the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the, the living one who died and is alive forevermore. He's the one who holds the keys of death and, and Hades. And so Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. If, if that is who Jesus is, friend, then the single most important way you could ever love the people around you is by showing them the worth and worthiness of Christ through the way you obey his word. 
That, that means that your obedience, it isn't just right. It's beautiful. Because it makes the loudest possible statement that Jesus is more precious than anything that we have to say no to in this world in order to follow him. It means that the best you will ever give, the best thing you will ever give this church, this community of believers here, is not your money or your attendance or your time, even though those things are a a blessing. The single best gift you will ever give this church is your personal holiness. Because what you need me to do for you the most is to show you the worth and worthiness of Christ through the way I obey his word. And what I need you to do for me the most, even as a pastor, is to confront me with the worth and worthiness of Christ through the way you obey his word. And I have seen so many situations as a pastor where a professing Christian justifies what they have done or are about to do with someone else by playing the love card. We play the love card. I lied because I love her and I thought she would be really hurt if I told the truth. Or we moved in together because we really love each other. Isn't that what ultimately matters, Pastor? Well, friend, if you've done or said, or maybe even right now you're thinking those kinds of things as a Christian, then know this. The problem is not that you love that person you're thinking about too much. The problem is that you love them too little. Why do I say that? Because if you really loved them, if you really loved them, then you would say or do whatever will guide them and provoke them to experience the joy and delight of living for the God who made them to know him. That's what love does. The most loving thing you can do in all your relationships is to show other people how to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Love God and obey his commandments. It's not, it's not just the, the best way or the ideal way we love our spiritual siblings. It's the only way. There's no neutral territory here, no middle ground. The essence of love is obedience in a relationship with God and a relationship with other Christians. But let's be honest, okay? And here we're, we're landing in on point three here, all right? That's really hard. Really hard. If the essence of love is obedience, it's really hard to keep God's commandments. It's really hard to follow Jesus in every area of life. And if it's not hard for you, you're lying to me. It's hard. And, and so we looked at verse three, and I'm on first glance, it's kind of like, well, John, what are you smoking? I mean, and his commandments are not burdensome. I mean, I read that this week and I just thought. For real? I mean, maybe my life is like the grand exception clause to, to Matthew 11.30. You know, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because I would certainly argue that it is not easy to love your wife as Christ loved the church or to pastor the church the way Jesus shepherds the church or love your kids the way that Jesus has loved you or give generously or share Christ with my neighbors or pray without ceasing or a thousand other things that God has called me to do on mission with the gospel. I don't find all that easy. 
So how can John say, and his commandments are not burdensome? I mean, I thought his commandments are burdensome. Well, well let me give you an illustration here, okay, that, that I think will set us up for where, where John's going to go. How many of you have ever run out of gas when you're driving? Now, don't be bashful. Some of you are like, yeah, sort of. Okay, you did. One more time. How many of you have run out of gas when you're driving? Yeah, well, I have. I have. You know, you forget the light was on or you're late for an appointment and you keep thinking, yeah, I can make it to short pump with like 0.07 gallons of gas. No, you can't. <laughs> but regardless of why it happened, you know, the experience, the car starts to shake, right? You lose power steering, if it's never happened to you, you, you think like your car is possessed. The engine dies and, and suddenly, it's happened to me on Woolridge Road, the act of driving that only a moment ago required some effort, but was certainly not burdensome, it suddenly becomes exceedingly difficult, right? So, so maybe you manage to wrestle the car over to the side of the road or you've got all your friends in the back and they're like, man time, and they all jump out and push. You know, either way, driving gets hard, burdensome, without gas. Do you realize that the same principle is true in your spiritual life? Look at verse four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith, our faith. Point number three, faith is the fuel of obedience. So faith requires a miracle. The essence of love is obedience. And faith is the fuel of obedience. You can feel these things working together, okay? So, so if obeying God's commands is like driving a car, then faith is the fuel that makes it possible. Faith keeps obedience from becoming burdensome. So, so think about this, all right? Have you ever noticed how two Christians can walk through the exact same situation and on paper, they each seem to be doing what's pleasing to the Lord, but their attitudes are completely different? You ever seen that? Well, obedience is always costly, right? You, you can't choose to follow Christ without, without choosing to reject the world. You can't gain Christ without counting other things as loss. But there is a kind of obedience, please hear this, in the midst of that cost that is nonetheless glad and joyful. And then there's a kind of obedience, even in the midst of that cost, the midst of that difficulty, that is oppressive and burdensome. Two kinds of obedience. So what makes the difference? What's well, very simple. Do you have any gas in the car? The presence or absence of faith. The presence or absence of faith. Faith is what determines when present that your obedience will not be joyless, dutiful, and burdensome, but rather, even in light of the cost, glad and joyful because it's got gas, it's got faith. This world in verse four that John speaks of, it's not spiritually neutral. We need to realize that. It's, it's like Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress. So when John speaks of the world that must be overcome, he's talking about everything that, that like Bunyan's story, worked to lure Christian off the path to the celestial city. 
And the situation was no different for the original recipients of 1 John or, or for us, okay? The world is full of false promises that have to be overcome by faith. So let me give you three examples. Don't talk to that guy about Jesus. He'll probably just think you're crazy. And what he thinks of you is way more important than what God thinks of you. Are you sure you want to write an offering check for that much money? That's a really nice car payment. Or a weekend on the town with the girlfriends. Besides, are you really sure? Are you really sure? That whatever treasures you're storing up in heaven are better than the possessions you could have right now? So let me get this straight. You're going to deny yourself the incredible pleasure of sex simply because some God that you can't see and that most people don't believe in says it's wrong. Have fun with that. That doesn't even make sense. Well, well, what's going on there? With each of those statements, what's going on? Well, every one of them is exactly different ways what Satan did to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? Those statements, those false promises, are an attempt to weaken your will to obey the commands of Christ by sabotaging, undermining, eating away at your faith in Christ. Now, it's certainly possible to do what's right, at least on the outside, in each of these situations simply because you know what's right, you grew up in the church, and you will yourself to obey. Been there, done that. Eliza would say, you're just doing what you know you're supposed to do right now, aren't you? (laughs) How did you tell? Maybe it's because the dour look on your face. I don't know. You know, it's possible. But but that kind of dutiful, begrudging obedience, at best, it won't last for long. Right? And at worst, or I should argue at best, I suppose, it's tremendously burdensome. It doesn't last for long. It's tremendously burdensome. So so what do we need? What do we need in order to overcome these kinds of temptations that, that the world just throws at us so that we can obey the Lord with joy and gladness? Verse four, we need faith. Look at verse five. Specifically a faith that what? Believes that Jesus is the son of God. That's what you need. At which point you should be thinking, hold on, Matthew. Now, I believe that. I mean, I believe that since I was seven. Jesus is the son of God. We all know that. Every Christian knows that. What in the world does that have to do with overcoming the world? How is that remotely relevant? Jesus is the son of God. When I'm struggling with the fear of man and generosity and sexual morality. Well, listen to me here, friend. If when I said you need faith that believes Jesus is the Son of God, and you thought, there you go with some irrelevant religious jargon, then you don't understand what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? Because, please hear this, whether or not you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that, that he is who he says he is, is the single most important factor in determining whether or not keeping God's commands is a duty or delight. So follow me here. I'm going to go right back through those temptations. 
show you what I mean. How does faith overcome them? Well, when you're battling the fear of man, what's going to empower you to overcome the world and fear God? Well, faith in Christ. Specifically, faith that is the Son of God. Jesus is the one who judges you, right? Jesus judges you, and because of the gospel, his, his verdict of approval over your life is certain. So you won't worry about what other people think of you when you're supremely confident that because of Jesus, your heavenly Father delights in you. Faith says that. How about when you're battling selfishness with, with your money and possessions? What's going to empower you to overcome the world and be generous? Yes, there's a pattern here. Faith in Christ. Specifically a faith that is the son of God. Jesus spoke the truth when he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And you won't try to make this world your home if you believe Jesus that he's got a better one for you. Heaven's your home. Faith believes that. How about when you're battling sexual immorality? What's going to empower you to overcome the world and and walk in purity? Three words, ready? Faith in Christ. Specifically, a faith that is the son of God. Jesus offers you a joy in knowing and loving him that exceeds any sexual pleasure you could experience with any man or woman. You won't chase after the supposed supremacy of sex if you're already satisfied with the supremacy of the Son. Faith believes that. It's faith in all that Jesus is for us as the Son of God that enables us to overcome the world and obey God's commands with joy and gladness. So his commandments are not burdensome only to the degree that they are fueled by faith. Faith requires a miracle. The essence of love is obedience. And obedience is fueled by faith. Friend, in conclusion, to pull this together, a a life of loving, faith-filled obedience is the entire goal of the gospel. That is the spiritual victory God wants you to experience. What's this victory God wants me to experience? A life of loving, faith-filled obedience. And that means that victory as a Christian is not about speaking the right words or praying the right prayer or binding Satan in the right way, okay? Victory as a Christian is about trusting Jesus that we might joyfully obey him and through our obedience love him and love one another. The victory faith enables is the obedience love requires. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray. I pray, Father, that as we prepare now to receive the Lord's Supper, that you would quite simply increase our faith. Thank you for reminding us today that faith, love, and obedience cannot be separated. They work together. And I pray, Lord, more than anything else, that as we remember the gospel through the sacrament that you have instituted, as we sing in response, that faith would rise. 
We need you to do that, Lord, and I pray that for the glory of your name, you would make this a church that is known for glad obedience. Amen.